0: If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of February 11, 2024. The podcast that secretly wiretaps the government. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's iodize the news of the bogus. The Julian Assange extradition hearings are coming up in the London High Court later this month. But unlike the hearings which I covered in depth on my YouTube channel, access won't be granted to journalists, even in the highly restricted way they were then. There, I relied largely on diplomat Craig Murray, along with a couple of others, for the blow-by-blow of what was going on but now he's pointing out the strict regulations severely limiting who can see the trial under the pretext of open access. kafkaesque Orwellian, and Stalinist all at once. The order reads in part, Any person may, with the written permission of an employee of HMCTS, which shall only be granted after approval by the court, observe the proceedings by way of an audiovisual link it then goes into the way that applicants can request written permission including an agreement to quote not make a recording capture images and or broadcast any part of the proceedings i understand that to do so may be an offense and or contempt of court punishable by imprisonment and or a fine I will abide by any directions given to me by the court during the hearing. I agree and undertake to the court that I will not provide the link that I am given to access the hearing to any other person. And all of that comes with absolutely no guarantee that permission will be granted. Yeah, open access. This is one of those I-do-not-think-it-means-what-you-think-it-means moments only people from England and Wales are allowed to apply. Despite the fact that it's the UK extraditing him, no one in Scotland or Northern Ireland will be allowed. By the way, Murray is Scottish. And despite the fact that Assange will be extradited to the US under a UK-USA extradition treaty, US citizens will not be permitted. And, despite the fact that Assange is an Australian citizen, Australians will not be permitted. And even if you ARE granted permission to watch, you need to take active steps to make sure no one watches it with you or overhears. And it comes with direct legal threats. Quote, If you do not obey the rules, then that might amount to a criminal offense, or contempt of court which may be punished by imprisonment. Your personal data will be processed for the purposes of facilitating your attendance at the hearing, ensuring that the proceedings are conducted without disruption, and enforcing the applicable laws and directions, including those requiring orderly behavior during proceedings, prohibiting live text-based communications from court, and the making of audio-visual recordings. They will not be used for any other purposes and will not be kept on file for longer than is necessary for those purposes. Yes, you can't even live tweet it. Quote, if you want to report, take care. You can report live in writing if you are a journalist or you have the specific permission of the judge conducting the hearing. Otherwise, reports must be after the event. In all cases, there may be reporting restrictions which you must obey. It is your responsibility to find out whether restrictions apply. Take all these rules seriously. If you break them, you might not just lose your access. You might be guilty of an offense or contempt of court for which you could be fined or sent to prison for up to two years. Murray wrote, not only does the Big Brother state want to know your identity and where you are, nobody else is allowed to watch the hearing with you. Why? What harm is it if your mum looks at it? It is a public effing hearing. Who are they scared is going to watch? Why does that scare them? What do they think these naughty people watching are going to do? Are they worried Putin and she will be secretly watching and will do some terrible internet magic that collapses the Western world? Just what is this crazy restriction about? Why is nobody outside the state and billionaire media allowed to give live information about what is happening in the court? Why is it okay if CNN does give live information, but not okay if a concerned citizen does it? Why does everybody have to be threatened with two years' imprisonment if they break these crazy rules? It's just more craziness from the British kangaroo courts. As much as we complain about corruption in the U.S. courts, and later on we'll be doing a lot of complaining, in the U.K. it seems this sort of thing happens just as a matter of course. As Lord Chief Justice Hewitt said a century ago, quote, It is not merely of some importance, but is of fundamental importance, that justice should not only be done, but should manifestly and undoubtedly be seen to be done. All public hearings, cases, and trials should be live-streamed to the world. With today's technology, there's no excuse for not doing so. This is the antithesis of a fair, open, and public proceeding, but... I suppose it figures, given what we've seen happen in the United States, a country with the First Amendment, where judges openly threatened internet commentators during proceedings. Without such a guarantee, is it any surprise that British courts would be so much worse? If you're looking for a way to support this channel, without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. So in the now classic style of the Twitter files, Congressman Jim Jordan, chair of the House Judiciary Committee, tweeted information about how Amazon caved to Joe Biden and White House officials to censor books and remove them from Amazon searches. This is how you burn books in the digital age. The Judiciary Committee has revealed emails obtained by subpoena showing that the White House pressured Amazon to censor books that the Biden administration didn't approve of in march of twenty twenty one just two months after Biden took office. They demanded to know quote, "Who can we talk to about the high levels of propaganda and misinformation and disinformation of Amazon before we get there. HOW DID THE WHITE HOUSE DETERMINE THAT THERE WAS PROPAGANDA AND MISINFORMATION AND DISINFORMATION IN THE FIRST PLACE? APPARENTLY, THEY WERE DOING SEARCHES ON WORDS SUCH AS VACCINE, AND GETTING RESULTS THAT DIDN'T JIVE WITH WHAT THE WHITE HOUSE AND THE CDC AND THE WHO WERE WANTING PEOPLE TO KNOW. THE MAIN OFFICIAL BEHIND THIS WAS ANDY SLAVITT, THE SAME ONE WHO, AT THE SAME TIME, WAS DEMANDING THAT FACEBOOK CENSOR MEMES CONTAINING TRUE INFORMATION. An Amazon employee whose identity was redacted had replied, We will not be doing a manual intervention today. The team slash PR feels very strongly that it is too visible and will further compound the Harry-Sally narrative, which is getting the Fox News treatment today apparently, and won't fix the long-term problem because of customer behavior associations. If we completely remove customer behavior associations, it will break the search. Another replied, As a retailer, we provide our customers with access to a variety of viewpoints, including books that some customers may find objectionable. All booksellers make decisions about what selection they choose to offer, and we do not take selection decisions lightly. So Amazon met with the White House on March 9. The first line item in the meeting notes read, Top talking points to be made affirmatively. Is the admin asking us to remove books, or are they more concerned about search results and order, or both? After the meeting, an internal email expressed that Amazon was, quote, feeling pressure from the White House. Starting on March 9, the same day as the meeting, Amazon enabled Do Not Promote on books the White House had complained about, as well as, quote, additional steps Amazon might want to take, to reduce the visibility of these titles. These revelations came after Slavitt was ordered by the White House not to appear in front of the Committee in violation of a subpoena. White House Counsel Richard Salber wrote to him, quote, To protect the constitutional separation of powers and the institutional interests of the White House, I write to inform you that the White House does not authorize Mr. Slavitt to appear at the Committee's scheduled deposition. The White House also objected to a deposition with Robert Flaherty, Biden's former director of legal strategy and who now works for the Biden campaign. A federal judge had previously found he had a key role in coercing Meta, X, and YouTube to censor content. The Judiciary Committee can now sue them or hold them in contempt of Congress, although they haven't said yet what, if any, action they're going to take. I know the wheels of justice turn slowly, but given this clear and undeniable evidence, how long is it going to take before all of these people are taken to account? If you ever wonder how such a thing can happen with any sort of atrocity, tyranny, or corruption, the answer is always because nobody stopped them. It's long past time somebody stopped this insane, psychotic, out-of-control administration. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? Another day, another politician fear-mongering about cryptocurrency being used for money laundering, and it's Elizabeth Warren again during the Senate Banking Committee hearing. She's been pushing her privacy-hating Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act, using money laundering as an excuse to spy on every single one of your purchases. Among other things, it extends KYC requirements to cover miners, validators, and wallet providers. She said, "...this bill would plug the holes in our anti-money laundering rules to make it easier for financial regulators to track suspicious crypto activity to make it more visible and to shut down the scammers." Sherrod Brown also attacked crypto at the meeting, saying, "...as we've seen in other hearings in the last three years, frauds and scams are not unique in consumer finance. They are also common within cryptocurrency. We will keep pushing to make our financial system safer whether it's stopping rampant frauds and scams in cryptocurrency, or in apps and check fraud. Of course, most of the thefts he mentioned in his comments are IMPOSSIBLE with cryptocurrency, at least if you stay away from centralized exchanges. Funny how he didn't mention that part. In case you think Republicans are any better, Tim Scott also supports the bill, Although he didn't mention crypto specifically in his opening statement, he did put the blame for inflation on money laundering. We've been covering how the attacks on cryptocurrency have escalated under the Biden administration, including actions taken to shut down apps such as Library and Dash Direct. Deputy Secretary Wally Adameo wants Congress to give them even more authority to do this stuff. We are calling on Congress to create a secondary sanction regime that will not only cut off a firm from the U.S. financial system, but will also expose any firm that continues to do business with the sanctioned entity to being cut off from the U.S. financial system. This is a significant tool we do not request lightly, but we need to do everything in our power to make sure that groups like Hamas are not able to find safe haven within the digital asset ecosystem. And they even want the power to go against providers outside the U.S. Meanwhile, government fiat money is used for money laundering far more often than crypto, and we've got another major example of that with details of how Iran is laundering money to get around U.S. sanctions. It begins with the Ministry of Defense and Armed Forces Logistics, which controls the Petrochemical Commercial Company, which is under sanctions from the U.S., on accusations they are funding both Russia and Hamas. They buy stuff from ASB Turkey, also sanctioned, who works with RPP Russia, sanctioned, and Azim Manzani, a senior official with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. In addition, Petrochemical owns PCC UK and NIOC UK, which are both sanctioned, and holds in trust Arya Associates in the UK, which banks with Lloyd's Banking Group one destination of the laundered funds. PCC UK also holds trust in Pisco UK, registered to a house in Surrey, who banks with Santander UK, another destination. And, back to Petrochemical once more, they own PCC China, who owns Black Tulip Trading in China, who also banks with Santander. They should have taken a tip from the Bidens and run them through more shell companies. That would have taken forever to unravel. This came to light after RAF forces joined the US in airstrikes against 2T rebels in Yemen. Financial Times analyzed the documents that resulted from these companies being placed under sanctions. Of course, UK officials, instead of acknowledging that this is nothing more than a horrendous failure of their foreign policy, firmly put the blame on too little government control of finances. Liam Byrne, Labor Chair of the House of Commons Business and Trade Committee, said, This is, frankly, a shocking failure to act in lockstep with our allies to shut down the financing of a hostile regime. It beggars belief that a business sanctioned by the U.S. is freely trading in London. Former U.S. State Department official David Asher said, for UK banks to continue doing business with them is not only a major risk, but is inconsistent with stated policy towards the Iranian regime. They've already hit other European banks with large penalties, including over $1 billion from Standard Chartered and $1.3 billion from Unicredit. I looked through the transcripts of the Senate committee meeting, none of them even mentioned any of this. And although there was a lot of blame put on crypto, they mentioned precisely ZERO examples that weren't either fiat on or off-ramping, or transfers through a centralized exchange. People, THEY DON'T CARE ABOUT STOPPING FINANCIAL CRIME. THEY COMMIT A LOT OF IT THEMSELVES. They just want to spy on you, and be able to steal your money with impunity. That's the only thing this has ever been about. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? And now it's time to excommunicate this week's biggest bogon emitter. And it's a joint one this week for both the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the news media for, once again, completely deceptive and idiotic fear mongering. NHTSA is continuing to pick on Tesla. As we saw last week, the Biden administration has been directly acting against them with many different agencies. NHTSA has been no exception. Back in December, we gave an example of this, NHTSA ordering a recall that was really an over-the-air software update, because they didn't think the car was bugging drivers enough warning them to pay attention to the road. And of course, the news media en masse published headlines of a massive recall of over 2 million Teslas, the biggest ever, involving autopilot crashes, and autopilot safety defect, and even... THE MODE THAT COULD KILL YOU. Now, it's deja vu all over again, involving autopilot crashes and warning light issues, as NHTSA issues another, recall of Tesla, in the form of an over-the-air software update most of them had already received before the notice was even sent out. The problem? NHTSA said the font size on their interior display was 5% too small. Here's what I want to know. If government can issue recalls of Teslas for minor crap like this, can they start to issue recalls of Windows and cell phones when they have severe security vulnerabilities? Just looking for consistency. And speaking of consistency, no other automaker got such a recall. But it's not because they didn't have this problem. FHY Booster on X posted links to times when GM, Hyundai, Kia, Ford, and Porsche had this exact same problem with just as many, if not more, vehicles, but didn't have to fix them because they filed an inconsequential non-compliance petition with NHTSA. That means that, instead of fixing it, they petitioned NHTSA and said they shouldn't have to fix it because it would be so expensive to do for such a small problem. And yet, there were no news headlines reading Ford refuses to fix major safety issue with warning lights or anything like that. But Tesla can do over-the-air software updates, so they were able to do this quickly and easily. They actually fixed this very minor safety issue to each and every one of their cars, literally overnight. And that allowed outlets like the Wall Street Journal to publish headlines like Tesla recalls millions of vehicles amid probe of autopilot crashes. But if you read their own story, quote, NHTSA said the issue was identified last month as part of a routine compliance check. Nothing to do with crashes. Nothing whatsoever to do with autopilot. No complaints. No issues. No nothing. Just bureaucrats being bureaucrats. And nowhere in their article do they mention that this fix has been delivered via a routine over-the-air software update. Tesla owners didn't even have to take any action. Even before the stories hit, the update had been pushed out in version 2023.44.30.13. CBS News wrote, Tesla recalls 2.2 million cars, nearly all its vehicles in the U.S. Yes, because they can UPDATE all the cars in the U.S. Whereas all the cars from Ford, Kia, and the others remain unfixed to this day. Not that this issue is anything to worry about to begin with. The Guardian. Tesla recalls almost all its vehicles sold in the U.S. over warning light problems. Makes it sound like major things like brake lights, huh? No. And it just goes on and on and on. Just like with all the minor software updates, they always go on about how it's the biggest recall to date, with an even bigger number of cars recalled, because Tesla pushes out the updates to all its cars, and they keep selling. So, yes, that number's gonna be bigger every time. Not that they point that out. They have their marching orders from Biden. Gotta take down Elon any way they can. Electrek made a blog post showing the differences in the graphics. And it's even worse than you might think. This isn't just bureaucrats screeching about font sizes. They had to replace The standard, circle-in-parentheses alerts, with a bang for brake, ABS for the anti-lock brake systems, and P for park, with the larger words, brake, ABS, and park. The icons that Tesla had to replace with English text were standard, international icons for these alerts. They're universally recognized and understood. Icons you could just glance at and understand, even if you see them out of focus. And now? you have to read and interpret them. Bad for millions of people for whom English isn't their first language. They actually made it more confusing, and it takes more time to look at the indicator to figure out what it means. Electrek wrote, We really need a new word other than safety recall for those, because media like the Wall Street Journal are really abusing them. It's starting to have no meaning now, and we'll take the more serious ones less seriously. Not to mention the fact that they required Tesla to kill trees to send millions of paper letters to Tesla owners about a software update they'll already have received. Saw your merit of Twin Birch tweetxed. The fact that increasing the font size of some warning icons by five percent is considered a recall is so dumb. It just results in misleading headlines like this and convinces some of the public. The Teslas have tons of safety issues because they don't bother to read past the headline. 99% of Tesla's recalls in the U.S. in 2023 were just over-the-air fixes. Tesla's physical recalls affected just 21,455 vehicles, or about 1% of the total. And that's a problem, because a vehicle that can have bugs fixed remotely and automatically represents an enormous safety benefit. Not even just inconsequential stuff like this. We're talking about problems Tesla noticed in their own crash tests and updated people's software to prevent, unprompted. Other car companies simply don't fix these issues. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Scaring people into not buying a car that can be so easily fixed makes people less safe. But once again, We see that the media long ago stopped being about informing the reader, if it ever really was, and has become more about attacking people they see as bad, getting revenge on people who have challenged their favorite politicians and companies, and giving cover to the people who butter their bread. Telling people that something that is safer is more dangerous isn't just lying. It's putting lives at risk. The only way this could be any worse is if the news media ignored major problems from other car manufacturers. Oh, wait, they do! Just three months ago, NHTSA made Ford and Lincoln recall over 125,000 vehicles because of risk of fire due to engine failure. That's a bit more serious than a tiny font. Also in December, Ford and Lincoln had to recall 45,000 cars, on top of 250,000 previously recalled back in 2020, because the doors could open while driving. How does that even happen? Back in July, Ford had to recall almost 900,000 F-150s because a wiring issue with the parking brake could cause it to engage while the car is being driven, a major safety issue that could cause accidents and cost lives. Not good enough for you? Check this one out. Back in September, Kia and Hyundai had to recall 3.3 million vehicles and had to inform their owners to park their cars outside, away from homes and other structures, because the cars could catch fire even when they were parked and turned off. Let's see, 2.2 million Teslas fixing a font issue that arguably shouldn't have been fixed at all, versus 3.3 million cars that could spontaneously combust when turned off. Which one do you think is the bigger recall? Which one do you think is the bigger safety issue? You CLEARLY can't trust the news media to give you good information here, so please, go to the website of your car's manufacturer and find the place where you can put in your vehicle's VIN and see if there are any recalls on it you need to have fixed, because for most automakers, that's the only way you'll find out. Meanwhile, let's see how many dozens of other recalls NHTSA can make on Teslas over the next few months for complete non-issues like this and the autopilot nag, and forcing their full self-driving to make ridiculously long stops at stop signs. And we'll also see what Biden and his cronies throw at Elon next. So all of that makes NHTSA and the news media this week's biggest bug emitter. Go to Firmoo, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot Bogosity dot TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmoo dot dot TV. And now let's vaccinate this week's Idiot, Idiot Extraordinary! extraordinary. And it's another one for Judge Arthur Engeron, just in case you think he couldn't have gotten up to even more antics now that the People v. Trump trial is over with. There's not supposed to be any new testimony or evidence given after the close of a case. There's certainly not supposed to be any given by the judge at any time. But apparently, Engeron was reading the New York Times about the case and just got all triggered by it. If the juror did that, they get sanctioned by the judge. So these documents are from the docket beginning with number 1683. That's an email from the judge that read, As you are undoubtedly aware, in an article in the February 1, 2024, online edition of the New York Times, headline, Trump's former financial chief in negotiations to plead guilty to perjury, William K. Rashbaum, Jonah E. Bromwich, and Ben Protest write the defendant Allen Weiselberg." is negotiating a deal with Manhattan prosecutors that would require him to plead guilty to perjury. What's more, he would have to admit that he lied on the witness stand in the case pending before me and during a pre-trial interview plaintiff conducted. As the presiding magistrate, the trier of fact, and the judge of credibility, I, of course, want to know whether Mr. Weiselberg is now changing his tune and whether he is admitting he lied under oath in my courtroom at this trial. Although the Times article focuses on the size of the Trump Tower penthouse, his testimony on other topics could also be called into question. I may also use this as a basis to invoke falsus in uno, which is a lawyer Latin phrase which means that if he lied about one thing, he must have lied about everything. The entire phrase is falsus in uno, falsus in omnibus, and while it's still technically allowed in American jurisprudence, most common law jurisdictions consider it a discredited doctrine based on outdated psychology. He went on to order the parties to reveal anything they knew about it. It was so bad that even the Attorney General had to school him on it. And when Letitia James's office corrects you on a trial on which you are completely corrupt on their behalf, you've way stepped over the line. Quote, Further delay in the final resolution of this proceeding pending the outcome of a perjury proceeding is unnecessary for a number of reasons. First, the record already demonstrates that exculpatory testimony from Mr. Weiselberg cannot be relied upon. Second, if Mr. Weiselberg did commit perjury, this court does not need to await the outcome of a criminal proceeding to resolve the issue. Third, there should be no further delay as a result of this development because there is no fixed period of time for any potential perjury issues to be resolved. If true, he should be held to account fully for his actions, but it should not delay a final decision and judgment imposing remedial measures in this law enforcement proceeding. The next filing was from Trump's attorney Clifford S. Robert at Robert & Robert, who, understandably, was more harsh. the article simply does not provide any principled basis for the court to reopen the record or question the veracity of Mr. Weiselberg's testimony in this case. Indeed, we respectfully submit that the court's request for comment on this speculative media account is unprecedented, inappropriate, and troubling. First, after more than three years of investigation, millions of pages of documents produced in discovery, countless depositions, and a three-month trial— the record in this case is closed. The only evidence that the court can consider in rendering its decision is that adduced during the trial. Second, the court lacks the legal authority under New York law to take judicial notice of news stories. Third, consideration by the fact-finder of matters outside the record, especially speculative news accounts, is simply improper and calls into question the impartiality of the court. Fourth, the application of falsus in uno to Mr. Weiselberg's testimony at trial, based on a news story, is especially troubling in this case. As the court is well aware, the Attorney General's witness, Michael Cohen, admitted to having perjured himself before, and in fact, perjured himself in the immediate view and presence of this court. Thus, it is inconceivable that the court would not apply falsus in uno to Mr. Cohen's testimony while musing on its applicability based on a speculative news story finally defendants counsel are well aware of their ethical responsibilities pursuant to the new york rules of professional conduct consistent with their ethical responsibilities defendants counsel will not make any statements concerning rumors of any kind involving mr weiselberg alina habba another of trump's counsel also submitted a response as Your Honor is aware, my office represents Mr. Weiselberg in the instant civil litigation. We do not represent him in connection with any criminal matters. I have conferred with my ethics counsel and have been advised that I am constrained by my professional ethical obligations from providing any further detail. No adverse inference should be drawn from my inability to respond. As for how Your Honor should address this matter, no further action is necessary or appropriate. Matters outside the record, such as outside media sources, cannot influence the Court's perception of this case or taint its view as to whether Mr. Weiselberg is a credible witness. Further, Mr. Weiselberg is entitled to a presumption of innocence. Therefore, it would be wholly improper and unconstitutional for this Court to presume that Mr. Weisselberg engaged in any criminal wrongdoing in Your Honor's courtroom, based solely on the publication of an unsourced and unverified news article for this same reason invocation of the doctrine of falses in uno would be entirely inappropriate with respect to mr weiselberg we urge you to render your decision based solely on the evidence now before you oh the judge did not like that he responded to robert's quote when I sent my straightforward, narrow request for information about possible perjury by Allen Weiselberg in the subject case, I was not seeking to initiate a wide ranging debate with counsel. However, your misleading response grossly mischaracterizes the letter that I wrote, and I feel compelled to respond. He actually had the gall to say quote. I have not planned and do not plan and did not suggest or hint that I would invoke falses in UNO based on this story. Uh, yeah, you did! We just read it! It's part of the public record! You and your co-counsel have been questioning my impartiality since the early days of this case, presumably because I sometimes rule against your clients. That whole approach is getting old. Yeah, right. Right. That's the reason they've been questioning you, not your absolutely horrendous behavior. As for the elephant in the room, quote, Your invocation of Michael Cohen's testimony and veracity is completely out of bounds. You have already submitted your post-trial briefs and made your final arguments. But that's the case with Weisselberg, too. The complaint was about doing it with Weisselberg and not Cohen even though Cohen has been convicted and was caught lying on the stand. If you're going to use it to discount Weiselberg's entire testimony, you have to do it with Cohen's as well. That consistency thing again. But, like fairness and impartiality, that's another foreign concept to this outlandish and deranged hack of a judge. So all that makes Judge Anger on this week's Idiot Idiot, Extraordinary! Well, that wraps up this Do you know any nice people? You know, normal, everyday people, not power-crazed nutters trying to take over the universe, edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to dunday.bogosity.tv for several ways to support, and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar, and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Thomas Sowell. If you have always believed that everyone should play by the same rules and be judged by the same standards... That would have gotten you labeled a radical sixty years ago, a liberal thirty years ago, and a racist today. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity.